Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Ludwig von Beethoven's life was a time of upheaval, war, nationalism, and new concepts of the individual, society, and the world. Much of the music he composed were for these new ideologies. City Lights music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart has been discussing the life and legacy of Beethoven in our 250 series. In previous shows, we learned about Beethoven's difficult childhood, his talented mentors such as renowned Austrian composer Joseph Haydn, and we learned about how he was an extremely accomplished solo pianist. Now we'll be looking at a more somber point in his life, when Beethoven started to become aware of his growing deafness. His life was a Shakespearean tale of heroic triumph and tragedy. He was the musical heir apparent of Haydn and Mozart, and a celebrity in his own time. But in a cruel twist of fate, he went deaf. And in the end, his descent into frustration, depression, and alienation read like a romantic novel. He was none other than Ludwig van Beethoven. WABE continues its tribute to this master composer who was born in December of 1770. And as we head toward the official mark of his 250th birth anniversary, Dr. Scott Stewart is with us again to highlight some of the best of Beethoven. Scott, welcome back. Hi, Lois. It's so nice to be back and so fun to revisit the Beethoven vault and hear such great music in uh, preparing some of these segments. We're kind of taking a meandering historical look at Beethoven's music through a chronological listing in, in some way, kind of a journey through his life of going from Bonn and into Vienna. It's so hard to cover everything, and I have um, kind of survivor guilt, I guess, for some of the pieces that we just, you know, kind of missed along the way. So we might have to do a uh, 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 circle back and pick up some of these great pieces of music that that uh, we didn't feature but it's so nice to have fond memories of music that for so many of us is a deep groove in our brains it just seems like when when was there a time we didn't know beethoven's fifth and some of these amazing melodies and pieces that he constructed and and hopefully for for all of us it's a time to whet our appetites for some undiscovered Beethoven. Always welcome. Scott, we've mentioned that music historians often group Beethoven's works into three periods. That may be oversimplifying things a bit, but it's convenient for study and listening purposes. Yeah, I think so. And of course, Beethoven never said, okay, today I will start my second period. <laughs> but uh, it is kind of interesting that in his physical movement around uh, Germany and Austria and in his learning period and his breaking away from his learning period into his new voice and then kind of the end of his career tend to fall 
fairly nicely for our purposes into these three periods. So that first time zone that we look at, which goes from when he was a kid up until about 1802 or so, includes pieces that he wrote when he was younger, uh, which we call juvenilia, and music that he composed that reflected the world that he grew up in. So this is Viennese and German classicism. The emphasis here is on balance and clarity and a kind of emotional restraint, not that it was without emotion, but it was often held in check compared especially to what would be coming up in the wildness of the Romantic era. So in this time, we see Beethoven experimenting with piano writing, especially his sonatas. He also starts to flex his orchestra writing muscles and has written a couple of combinations of these two skills with two fairly conventional piano concertos and his first two symphonies. The first of these, which we visited last time, is very classical, quote unquote, and the second symphony behaves a little bit more like a rebellious teenager that uh, has a little extra expansiveness and a little more Beethoven fire. One of the sad characteristics from the early to more mature second period is Beethoven's awareness of his growing deafness. We're not exactly sure when he noticed it, but in 1801, he confessed to his friend and doctor, Franz Wegler, that he had stopped attending social functions for two years because of his hearing problems. We have actually pretty good records about uh, not when he first noticed it, but when he started to have problems, he started trying to find solutions all over the place. His ears hummed and buzzed. Uh, which you can imagine is the worst possible fate for a composer to have. He tried a number of home remedies, including hot and cold baths, olive oil in his ears, pills, infusions. There are records of piano students going over to have a lesson, and he had cotton stuffed in his ears with some kind of yellowish liquid that they'd been dipped in. So we know he was trying lots of quote-unquote cures. And so it must have been really difficult for him to know that it was happening and that it was getting worse. But paradoxically, it was during this period of intense depression and anger, which he expressed, that Beethoven produced some of his most genial and joyful music. In fact, this period of time between 1800 and 1815 is when we see the creation of many of his most famous and well-known compositions. piano sonata number 14 in C-sharp minor, known as the Moonlight Sonata of Beethoven. We heard Daniel Barenboim in that recording. The tempo is marked quasi una fantasia, almost a fantasy. Music critic Ludwig Rehlstab praised the work, comparing it to moonlight shining on a lake. But that was after Beethoven's death. That was already well into the 19th century. Correct. There were only a couple pieces published during Beethoven's life that had a little subtitle attached to it. And so that is a a very important point that it was often mm, publishing companies and marketers that kind of uh, colored up the, the, the marketing presentation of some of this music after Beethoven had died. And we're going to start talking about all the different ways that Beethoven was revolutionary 
in his composing. And you can look at different aspects of music, like melody and harmony and rhythm and time and modes of expression. And when you talk about individual instruments like the piano, um, using pedals and how pianos started to be developed during this time to have much larger range on the right side, the higher side and the left side, the lower side of the piano. And Beethoven really addressed all of these aspects of music composition in turning this corner from the classical era into the romantic era. So here he has the sonata, which has been well fleshed out by Mozart and Haydn and others during his youth. Typically, a sonata is kind of like an Oreo cookie. It has three parts. It has a fast part and a slow part and then another fast part. And that was kind of the typical form of a sonata. And it could be for piano or other instruments like violin. And with the Moonlight Sonata, this is the 14th sonata, Beethoven breaks with this tradition of fast, slow, fast, and starts the piece with this very famous adagio or slow movement. And he marks this movement senza sordini, which means without mutes or without releasing that damper pedal, which makes it much more smoky and gooey and echoey um, for a, a different kind of effect than you would have heard in the cleaner, clearer classical presentation. And I will admit, Lois, you're a much better pianist than you would ever admit, and much better than I, with my two index fingers pointing, could ever be. <laughs> but, uh, you know, some amateurs can give the old college try at the famous opening movement because it's really slow. Now, to play it musically well, it takes a great master. But when you get to this third movement, this is really moving into the realm of the well-practiced virtuoso pianist. The third movement, the stormy finale, is twice as long as the first two movements of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Beethoven may have been inspired by the improvements in piano technology in the 1800s. They had more notes. You mentioned the sustaining pedal, Scott, and they were physically larger, so they opened up great new possibilities for Beethoven's huge range of volumes and intensities, and he made the most of this new technology. He did, and he actually wrote about this piece in his diaries, surely I've written better things. <laughs> and this may be so, but this piece has been recorded by more than 80 different professional pianists and is played the world round. And it remains one of his most treasured compositions. Scott Beethoven only held one appointment by the court orchestra in Bonn when he was a very young man. Otherwise, he was a free agent, if you will. When he had established himself in Vienna in his late 20s, he didn't even look for work with the government or the church. 
Instead, Beethoven was supported by a group of patrons, and he was able to earn a living that way, which granted him a tremendous amount of artistic independence. And fortunately for Beethoven, the musical diet of the aristocracy was chamber music. He composed piano trios and string trios, sonatas for piano and cello and violin, and in 1798, Beethoven was commissioned by one of his patrons, this is Prince Franz Maximilian Lobkowitz, to compose six string quartets. So that's four movements each. Now, success with the string quartet genre really was an entry point into another level of musical composition for Beethoven and another level of the aristocracy. So it guaranteed him further sponsorship and financial success. Beethoven spent about two years focusing on string quartet writing, making constant revisions. He probably felt a bit of heat from the very well-established canon of Mozart and Haydn. Supposedly, Beethoven copied out Mozart's entire string quartet in A, Kirchhoff 464, in order to get a feel for how quartets should be written, getting it into his hand in his mind's ear and seeing that Mozart on the page, he thought he could somehow imbibe it and channel it. Yeah, and these six quartets that he wrote were published in 1801. This is the same year as the Symphony Number no. 1 by Beethoven. The first of the quartets, the Opus 18 Number no. 1, is an F major, the happy little key, and it ended up demonstrating Beethoven's composing style in the string quartet genre, which, as you say, did not come easily, and he spent lots of time reflecting and practicing on. Yeah, Mozart was legendary for composing in his head and then transcribing the music in score form with almost no errors or revisions. This was genius. Manuscripts of Bach and Mozart are spotless and perfect in their own hand. Beethoven, on the other hand, seemed to struggle over every note. His scores are chaotic, messy, and indecipherable notes, crossed out measures and scratches, kind of like the man himself. Yes, and I'm kind of, if there, if he were podcasting, I'm sure there would be lots of bleeps and bloops that would have to be edited <laughs> out. I just get the feeling that he really, really worked. And I think that's one reason why we love Beethoven so much. We sometimes view Mozart and Bach and others as these musical deities that were, you know, perfect in every way and didn't have struggle and stuff just came. That's oversimplified, of, of course. course. Of course, they all worked. But Beethoven clearly had to um, really sit down and maybe there was some insecurity, maybe there was experimentation. There just was a real human being with flaws and doubts behind the writing. And it's, it's kind of fun to look at sketchbooks and see how hard he really worked before the final product was produced. The first of these quartets, the Opus 18, number one in F major, he sent the entire score to a friend of his with the instructions, do not circulate this, <laughs> do not show it to a soul. And in the meantime, while it was being looked at, he kind of redid the entire piece and you can compare the one he sent to his friend with the final one. It's every measure has been changed, every single measure, but it's a stunning, first string quartet. Here it is, the string quartet in F major. Thank you. 
Beethoven's String Quartet Number no. 1 in F, played by the Smetana Quartet, a witty and cheerful work with the influence of Franz Josef Haydn, Beethoven's teacher. But the players have to deal with Beethoven's faster tempos, as well as his challenging and complex musical lines crossing each other what's known as counterpoint. So while it's graceful and balanced like the works of his predecessors, in this string quartet we begin to detect an edge. Yeah, it's kind of like the growth chart that a lot of families keep on their wall as their kids get taller. <laughs> you can start to measure Beethoven's Beethovenness through the development of these early quartets. The second string quartet in G is also a very sunny piece. Again, thinking about what was going on psychologically in Beethoven's personal life, remarkable that he's churning out this really delightful music. The fourth movement is especially playful. I just love it. And the, the cello kind of takes the lead here by inviting all the other kids in the quartet to come out and play. If you've just tuned in, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzis with Dr. Scott Stewart discussing music of Beethoven in honor of his 250th year. I am reminded of my freshman year in college when um, my theory professor made the point of demonstrating that Composers don't have to be happy to write happy-sounding music. And similarly, you can be blissfully happy and write tragic-sounding music. Same with playwrights and authors, of course. This second string quartet earned the nickname Komplementierungsquartet, or the Quartet of bows and curtsies. This playful work is full of good humor and wit, but Beethoven still asserts his individuality in the form of dramatic thrusts and surprises. Yeah, and this is also one of the quartets where we get a glimpse of Beethoven's later practice of interrelating thematic materials among different movements in the work. The older practice was just to have four contrasting movements that may or may not have been able to be played by themselves. Now Beethoven's starting to think more holistically in, in connecting ideas among different movements. This will also start to happen in his symphonies pretty soon. So the bridge or the transition theme of the first movement of the second quartet is a really sweet little tune that sounds like this. And then the opening of the fourth rambunctious movement is undeniably similar in shape to that theme. Thank you. 
So this is kind of like an author or a poet who ties up all of the plots and the subplots at the end of a novel, or maybe think about an interior decorator who uses a, a color scheme or a design concept to connect different rooms in a house. Beethoven uses this, what we call thematic unity in many later works, including in the famous Fifth Symphony with the bum, 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 kind of occurring hundreds of times throughout the symphony. Things take a darker turn in the dramatic quartet Opus 18, number four, which is now in the key of C minor. That's the key of Beethoven's famous Appassionata Sonata and the Fifth Symphony, among others. Beethoven returns to this key for expressing high drama and tragic content. Yeah, and now we're hearing some of the Sturm und Drang, the, the storm and stress of a very moody Beethoven. We have a nervous cello pulse, this very angsty melodic theme, and it seems that we can hear the, the musical equivalents of sighing and punching and jabbing. opening of the Beethoven String Quartet number four in C minor, the first movement. These Opus 18 quartets are a really beautiful, rich body of work. And even though they're young Beethoven, they are completely satisfying as high and entertaining art. And I think if you ask any string player that you know, these are not easy by any means. They're um, a kind of a musical turning point along, I think, with the, the third symphony, which is coming up for Beethoven's style as we kind of roar into the Romantic era. Beethoven had demonstrated mastery of the classical style from Haydn, Mozart, and now he was ready to branch out on his own. Scott, not by any design that we know was intentional, Beethoven's odd-number symphonies, 1, 3, 5, 7, and 9, tend to be weightier and more dramatic. His even-numbered symphonies are generally thought of as lighter and breezier. Yeah, and you can follow the symphonies just like you can follow those early quartets and see how Beethoven was growing and changing and developing over a long period of time. This third symphony that's that's coming up becomes a, a you know planting a flag in the ground and saying, I am here. <laughs> and he himself, after a, a, a long famous episode entitled his third symphony, Heroic, the Eroica. But we're looking at the second symphony, which I see also as the work of a hero who was overcome with depression and even thoughts of suicide at his impending deafness. It's one of these energetic and cheerful works that Beethoven wrote in the very happy key of D major. And even though we think of the third symphony as his big breakthrough symphony, the second is a huge leap from the more conservative classicism of his first symphony. Indeed. Beethoven was advised by his doctor to spend the summer months of the year 1802 in Heiligenstadt, a pleasant village outside of Vienna. It was hoped that morning walks and the waters of a nearby spa might heal him, but it became clear that his hearing would never improve. And it was here, in tremendous despair, that Beethoven wrote a letter to his brothers known as the Heiligenstadt Testament. 
And this is essentially a suicide letter in which Beethoven expresses that he really can't go on living. In a final paragraph, he writes, I would have ended my life. It was only for my art that held me back. It seemed to me impossible to leave the world until I had produced all that I felt was within me. And so Beethoven never sent this letter. It was found after his death in 1827, and it seems to be as close as he came to really ending everything, but uh, a beautiful statement that uh, his musical artistry was going to be the motivation for him to keep going. We're listening to the opening slow movement of Mozart's Symphony Number no. 38, the Prague Symphony, written in 1786. The first movement of Beethoven's Second Symphony may have some parallels with Mozart's, but it is clear that Beethoven's design is to bring us new possibilities of dramatic weight in a symphony. the opening adagio movement of Beethoven's Second Symphony, played by the Berlin Philharmonic and conductor Herbert von Karajan. And after this long, slow introduction, which is pretty bold, and it also has a lot of storytelling moves in it with different contrasting musical moods, which is a little unusual for a, a symphony introduction, Beethoven builds up tension, and then the movement kind of spills into this very bubbly, lighter allegro movement. So after the great cheer of the first movement, we are treated to a second movement of the second symphony. This is a larghetto, a slower movement, which is serene and delicate. And it's basically a parade of really lovely lyrical melodies.
If you've just tuned in, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzis with Dr. Scott Stewart discussing music of Beethoven in honor of his 250th year. We'll be back after a short break on 90.1 WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. We're back with City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz is here with you and Dr. Scott Stewart. This is the third part of our series honoring Beethoven at 250, observed worldwide during the year 2020. Beethoven was single-handedly catapulting the tempo or speed of third movements of symphonies from the stately aristocratic minuet and trio model to wild, frenetic scherzos. Scherzo is the Italian word for joke. And in the second symphony, for the first time, he writes the actual term scherzo, and this changes all symphonies moving forward. Scott, if I might add, I don't believe it's overthinking it, that Beethoven did away with the minuet and trio because the minuet was 18th century aristocratic, a courtly dance. And it, here is Beethoven, the enlightened thinker, the man of the Enlightenment, who does not believe in the aristocracy, and he didn't want the minuet in there. It's also remarkable, I think, if I might step back a moment, in that Prague symphony, Mozart omitted the minuet. I believe that in dedicating that to the people of Prague who loved him as he always wished he'd been loved in Vienna. He thought they were more sophisticated, they were less superficial, and they didn't need that courtly aristocratic dance. He omitted it. So I think there is a sociopolitical statement made here. I think that's definitely in the mix. And also Mozart probably had enough social graces to not say that, but Beethoven didn't. (laughs) And so (laughs) if he had upset someone by not putting a minuet in, he didn't care and he would have told them that. (laughs) And so there are many incidents of Beethoven being rude or off-putting to people who were actually paying his little salary, (laughs) but he, he was unconcerned with that. So, you know, you be you, I always say. (laughs) There are music historians who will revel in doing uh, an online search, you know, find your favorite streaming service for this movement of of Beethoven. And what you'll find is a huge variation in the lengths of recordings of this movement, meaning that different conductors take lots of different tempos. In fact, Gunther Schuller, the well-known conductor and educator, who uh, did lots of critical reviews of recordings during his lifetime, often measured different lengths of movements and then basically came to the conclusion that nobody was right because they weren't paying attention to the conventions of the time. And remember, this is when the, the, the standard that we use today, the metronomic marking, was just coming into use. So there's still uh, several questions out there about what 
Beethoven's actual tempos were for some of these movements. The London Symphony recordings of this scherzo with Joseph Cripps conducting uh, clocks in at three minutes and 32 seconds, but there's another one with Bernard Heitink at three minutes, 59 seconds. So in musical terms, you know, 27 seconds is actually a long time. Sure. The, the winner, if, if that's what this is, <laughs> of the race is conductor Arturo Toscanini with the BBC Orchestra coming in at three minutes, 13 seconds. So one of my favorite versions of this is the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra from Amsterdam and Bernard Heiting. This is the Scherzo movement of Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 2. Franz Josef Haydn was the undisputed master of both the string quartet and the symphony, and he was still alive at this time in Beethoven's life. Beethoven injected the fourth and final movement of his second symphony with great humor, some might say devilish humor, as both a nod to his teacher and also a little bit of rebellion. I think so. And Beethoven is on the eve of writing his third symphony, the Eroica, which eclipses all previous symphonies in scope and length. But the opening of the fourth movement of the second symphony gives us clues about what's to come. The opening theme is wild and a little sassy. It's uh, an impetuous teenager that's blowing raspberries at the establishment. Here's the second theme, which seems much more formal and stately compared to the first. This transition or bridge theme brings in the clarinet and the bassoon with some really simple chord outlining. And this is the cadence or the finishing theme that's very bold and forceful and bounces us back toward that really wild opening theme. We've already seen Beethoven expanding the symphony with that slow introduction in the first movement, and we see him futzing around with the ending as well. In this case, he expands the coda, or the tail end of the symphony, to twice that of the development section, which was super unusual at the time. Then he does something that's completely against the rules. He introduces a new theme.
It doesn't amount to a lot, but it's still a flouting of convention to bring in something brand new when you're about 30 seconds from the end of the entire symphony. And this will be a preview of things to come. Then he gives us the real ending, a very sunny, happy D major confirmation. As we journey with Beethoven in this transition from a youthful first compositional period, we're going to see him maturing quickly and blazing new trails as a composer. Famous Beethoven emerges in a period that sees the creation of the famous Symphony No. 5 and his only opera, Fidelio. So very soon we will turn our attention to those pieces and a very heroic symphony. Dr. Scott Stewart is a hero to us and to his students, I might add. He is WABE music contributor and host of Strike Up the Band. Dr. Stewart is on the music faculty at the Westminster Schools and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. Scott, as always, it's been a joy. Thank you. It's been so fun. Thanks, Lois. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzis, thank you for joining us. Earlier this year, Will Ransom, Artistic Director of the Emory Chamber Music Society, sat down with Lois to celebrate the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth. Here, they discuss what made Beethoven great. Yeah, it's the jumping little record I want my jockey to play. Roll over Beethoven, I gotta hear it again today. Ludwig van Beethoven is the iconic classical composer. When Chuck Berry wanted to make a statement about rock, it was Beethoven he told to roll over. This year marks the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth. Emory Chamber Music Society's director and extraordinary pianist Will Ransom is here. Thank you, Lois. What a perfect introduction, because Beethoven was the original rock and roller. You know, no his, kidding. his final piano sonata, the great opus 111, uh, last one he wrote, has a section in it that is absolutely uh, rock and roll. What makes Beethoven great? Why is he the iconic composer? I think it's because he is so relatable to us. Despite being uh, such an incredibly creative genius that goes beyond anything that we mere mortals can, can really imagine, there's still something about his music and about the struggle in his music, which was in his life as well, and his willingness and ability to overcome that and to express that. And I think that's what makes his music so powerful to us and so uh, important to the whole world. Like all great composers, he has a whole universe in, in every piece that he wrote, especially as his life went on and his music developed and went on. He was able to portray the human condition in a way that I don't believe has been done as well before or since. Mm. And all the more extraordinary, as you point out, because of the adversity he suffered and ultimately triumphed over, which we hear again and again depicted in his music, the final movement of mm. the Fifth Symphony, the final movement of the Ninth Symphony yes. with the Ode to Joy, and the beauty found throughout this chamber music. He wrote himself, he said, I know of no lovelier delight than the string quartet. And it, it was truly his favorite genre, his most personal genre. He wrote them uh, throughout his life from from youth through to one of his very final pieces as well. They encompass everything from the most heroic to the most grand playing to the absolute most intimate and emotional 
expression through music that has ever been written. Will Ransom, Artistic Director of the Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta, talking with Lois Reitzis. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning at 11, we will talk with executive producers of She ATL, a virtual summer theater festival that produces work by female-identifying playwrights. Our producers are Ryan McFadden and myself, Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and Lois Reitzis is our host. I'd love it if you'd follow her on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also listen to past interviews and shows from our archives at wabe.org slash citylights. City Lights is now a podcast, and you can check it out wherever you download your podcast. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.